All right, Luke chapter 2. Um, anybody else a little tired at the beginning of the new year? Man, that first week of school, whew. Um, kids, why, why, why do kids get up at 5 a.m. on days where there is no school? And on days where there is school, you cannot get them out of bed. Why does that happen? I don't understand. It's a thing, isn't it? Oh, man, and we're back in the middle of it. Oh, goodness gracious. That's all right. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the book of Luke, and we have just finished, of course, talking about all the Christmas things and the wonderful miracle of God becoming a man on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, taking on flesh for us to become a, man, a family member to redeem us from wrath against sin. How incredible. And now, as we continue in the book of Luke, we're going to move on a little bit. If you recall from our Christmas time, Dimitri did a fantastic job reading Luke 2 about the birth of Jesus. Now we're in Luke 3. And in Luke 3, what's happening is John the Baptist, who's kind of a cousin of Jesus's, but he is a prophet who's been anointed to prepare the way for the Messiah who's coming. So Jesus has been growing up. A lot happens. Sort of the gospel skips forward like 30 years really quick. It has a little bit about when he's 12, and then all of a sudden he's like grown. And so Jesus is about to begin his ministry. And before he does that, John the Baptist, who's a prophet of God, a mouthpiece, a speaker on God's behalf, who the Lord is telling to speak, he is going to prepare the way. And in doing so, he has a specific message that he's going to speak to the people, and we're going to look at that today. So let's read together. We're going to read a couple chunks of scripture as we look at what's happening in Luke chapter 3 and how that applies to us today. Let's start Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what it says. <clears throat> in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother, Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Tecrionis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of, of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of the repentance for the, for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book and the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain shall, and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. Let the rough places become level ways, and all flesh see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with your repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Praise the Lord for his word. We're going to continue on in the story in a little bit, but I just want to pause and bring out a couple things that are happening. So this guy, John the Baptist, he is... A prophet, as we said, his birth, as you recall, that we talked about before the Christmas season, was miraculous. His mom was advanced in, the age, in her age and unable to have children. And so God causes this baby to come. So the father, Zechariah, and the, the mom, Elizabeth, conceive this baby in their old age. And if we recall, an angel comes down and speaks to the dad while he's performing temple duties and tells him, you're going to have a son. 
and the dad asks for a sign, and the sign is he becomes mute and deaf for a time. Boy, what a sign. Usually when we ask God for a sign, we don't expect it to be, become mute and deaf. That's not so great. So <clears throat> pregnancy goes on, baby's born, and they want to name this baby Zechariah after his father. Um, I am Stephen J. Adelini II. I'm named after my dad. And when I didn't name one of my children Stephen J. Adelini III, we had to have a discussion about it. <laughs> and so that's a big deal in families, isn't it? And so being called the name of your father is a good thing, especially if the dad is unable to speak and is having trouble hearing because he's been struck mute and deaf by the angel. The, everybody else assumes this must be what it's going to be. What other kind of things are assumed on children like that when they take their dad's names? Oftentimes, you're assumed that you're going to go into the same profession. Now, this profession that Zechariah is in, he's a, he's a Levite. He's a, a priest in the temple. And he's doing specific service on specific days inside the temple. He's not the high priest, but he's pretty high up there in terms of the order of all the priesthood things. And he's doing service. And it's assumed that Zechariah Jr. is going to do the same things. Instead, Zechariah motions for a tablet to be brought to him. And he writes on the tablet, the boy's name is John, because that's the name that the angel had given them. They named the baby John. Immediately, he starts talking again. He can hear. He starts praising God and proclaiming and prophesying himself about all the great things that God's going to do. It's miraculous. Now, if you're following the career of this baby child, and that's how it started, and everybody in the village knows you were advanced in years, barren, unable to have children. Those are the kind of words they used. Suddenly, baby comes. The baby comes in a miraculous way. God does something spectacular in the temple. The husband, deaf and mute. Then he says, the baby's name is John. Now he's prophesying. What is this baby going to do? It's going to be amazing. And so John grows up, and we don't hear really anything about him growing up. All of a sudden, he's just grown. And his message is what? His message is, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? And the message is not a great church growth message. In fact, you would expect that somebody who started off with such a miraculous past would have the biggest church in town. And instead, he goes out to the wilderness by the Jordan where there's nobody, and everybody has to come out to him to hear the word that he's going to say. That's weird. It's also weird that where his dad is at the temple doing sacrifices, receiving things, working in the temple. John instead goes to the wilderness, and he is baptizing people in water. Now, baptism is a, a ceremony, if you will, where you take somebody and you put them in the water, and you symbolically, but also just in terms of your heart, something happens where you are cleansed from your sin. This is the similar but different than the baptism that we do today. Because Jesus has not fulfilled his ministry yet. He's not died on the cross. He's not raised again. So he's not baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we do, right? In this time, he's baptizing people as a sign of their repentance. Repentance means that they are turning away from the way that they used to be. That instead of going this way, they are turning to go this way. And now they're going to follow righteousness. I used to lie. Lord, forgive me for lying. I'm turning. I don't lie anymore. And as a sign and symbol of that, they're getting plunged beneath the water to say, look, you've been cleansed of this. Now, isn't it interesting that the prophet Isaiah had said that this boy would come, this special prophet would come, 
a voice crying in the wilderness to make straight the path for God. Bring mountains low, make valleys high, make it easy to come into things. And he's not talking about physical, geographical things. He's talking about the valleys and the peaks of your heart. That our hearts have been changed and washed and ready and repentance has come to see the righteousness of the kingdom instead of seeing the way that people used to live. Now what's interesting about this is that this is not John's normal birthright. His normal birthright is in the temple. And in the temple, there's special regulations that happen with priests on how the priests can live their daily lives. So the priests, for example, are not given inheritance of land where they get to farm and have you know, giant farms and sheep and do all kind of stuff. They might have a little garden, but they don't get the same kind of things like the other tribes got. They live off of the offerings of the people. So the people come and they bring their sacrifices of sheep and things like that, and then the priests live off that. Now, why are, why are they bringing sheep? Do you remember? Sacrifices. And in the law, it said, if you come before God, because the penalty of sin is death, there has to be death. There has to be bloodshed for you to come into God's presence. So if you want to come and worship and you want to be cleansed and you want to be made right, there has to be blood. Now, those priests were in charge of doing that. So they'd wash things. They'd actually do the sacrifices, and then some of the sacrifices pieces would get kept. Sometimes it was things like grain offerings too or whatever, but that became the sustenance for all the priests. But John is not at the temple. John is in the wilderness. And we hear in the book of John, the Gospel of John, what the, John the Baptist is eating. Do you remember what he's eating? Locusts and honey. He's taking his inheritance right in the priesthood where he should have been named after his dad. He should have been doing the sacrifices. He should have been able to partake in all these things. And instead, he's preaching a radically different message, and he's not partaking in all the stuff that's happening in the temple. Now, it's really interesting, at the beginning of chapter 3, that Luke, who's a physician by trade, who's given the account of Jesus and the account of the gospel, he's telling us exactly when this happens, and he mentions all these different people, doesn't he? And one of the things he mentions in that, with the different rulers that he mentions, is that Annas had just been the high priest, and now Caiaphas is the high priest. Did you know that there was a problem that was taking place in the temple and in the priesthood at this time? And that problem was this. God had told the people, this is who the priests are supposed to be. The high priest is supposed to be of this line. This is how you choose who it is. This is how we're going to do it. But when the Romans invaded... Certain Jewish people rose to power, in this case the Herods, the line of Herod, and that great deal. And so King Herod had worked a deal with the Romans. And instead of abiding by the law of God and, and following what God said to do in choosing the high priest, he chose political allies who would do what he wanted and who would follow what Rome said. And the problem that's happening with the priesthood and the temple at this time is they're not doing the normal sacrifices the way they're supposed to, because the people that are there are political appointees who have a different agenda than God's agenda. And John the Baptist, though he's a son, though he should be Zechariah Jr., goes not to the temple but to the wilderness and speaks out a word that is not, bring me what I deserve. Bring me the sacrifices that I should live by. Instead, radically, he eats locusts and bugs and honey. 
because he's not going to partake in that thing because he wants to demonstrate that the kingdom way is the way of righteousness. You have to change your heart. you got to be plunged in the water. you got to be washed clean. The Messiah is coming. The Christ is coming. The King is coming. You can't live like that anymore. you got to come, and you got to come to him by your heart and not just by the right offerings you bring or the right political alliances. He even goes on to say that, doesn't he? He says, don't assume that you say, I'm a child of Abraham. I've got the right lineage. I've got the right name. I've got the right pedigree. So God will love me. God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. You can't rely on that. You've got to rely instead on that God is good enough and that if you repent, he hears your prayers and trust him and get plunged in the water and then live it out. It's a radically different message, isn't it? And so let's read on and hear what he says. We're going to read on starting at verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. And, he said to the, and they said to them, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what are we to do? And he said to them, do not extort any money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, but be content with your wages. These are shocking things. These are shocking things because the way to get things done in the world really is by bribes, isn't it? You want to get something done politically? Use a bribe and that will work. We see that all around the world, don't we? We see that sometimes, unfortunately, in our own government circles. And this time period is no different because the people that are supposed to be upholding the righteousness of the nation and bringing people to God and praying for them and showing them the way that they're supposed to live and showing them what the law says, instead are political appointees who are doing whatever the government and whatever Herod says. And this guy Herod is an immoral guy. This guy Herod has lots of problems. Problems not only with his policies and administration and things that he's doing, but in his own heart, in his own family, he's helped have his brother killed. He's taken his brother's wife. He's doing all kind of weird stuff. He's got this weird incestuous relationship going with his niece. All kind of stuff is going on. And you know who's calling him out? Not the priests. Not the people of the temple. Not the other political appointees in the government. It's this guy in the wilderness who eats bugs. Who's calling him out to say the truth. Because he's going to take even mountains and squish them down and take valleys and rise them up so that the path is ready for the Messiah to come. John the Baptist has a mission. Now his mission to make things ready for the Messiah is a huge mission. This is a huge mission for a lot of reasons. The first reason it's a huge mission is because the Messiah is the, the one that everyone is waiting for who will be the salvation of everyone. God had said in the past through the prophets that there was going to come a son. There was going to come a person, the Christ, which is the word Messiah that's translated basically to Greek. That the Christ would come. This king would come. He would rescue his people. He would change everything. He would usher in a new age of righteousness and peace and joy. And this king would come and he would make everything right. And so John the Baptist's job is to prepare the way for that king. It's also significant because for 460 years since Malachi the prophet was walking and talking, nobody had heard the word of the Lord like John the Baptist. 
for 460 years, there was relative silence as the people waited for this king to come. That's a long time. And now all of a sudden, the word of the Lord comes, not to a prince, not to a king, not to a great politician, not to a movie star, not to somebody at the temple even. It comes to a guy in the wilderness named John who's eating bugs and calling people out for what they really are. God is doing amazing things. Notice the people he talks to in this passage. The first one is just somebody who has two tunics. What does he say to do? He says, share your tunic with the people who don't have anything. The second people are tax collectors. Tax collectors were Jewish people who knew God, who were part of the people of God, but worked for the Roman government. And in working for the Roman government, they were often given soldiers who would work with them. And so the soldiers would come, and what, the way that things happened is these tax collectors were not like TurboTax today. You don't get online and just do your taxes. Instead, you have to come down to the tax assessor, and you're assessed that tax, and whatever they say is the law. So the tax could be 20% or 10% or 5% or whatever it is, but whatever that tax collector says goes. And not only does that go, but there are soldiers there who are going to make sure that happens, who probably get a cut too. And so that tax collector can now make the tax rate 50% and you give all your money to them. So the tax collectors were very rich people, but they were rich people off the backs of their own countrymen. And not only that, but threatening like mafia style. Like, we're gonna make sure you're good with, with Rome. I'll make sure you're good with the government. But uh, Guido here, he's gonna, he's gonna make sure you're good with the government too, because you owe something. That's basically what was happening. And so the soldiers would come in, and at the point of a spear, you were required to give away your money to the tax collector. And while these guys got rich, the people were kept in basic poverty. Not only that, but Jewish people were second-class citizens. Very few of the Jews were actually citizens of Rome who had rights. And if you weren't a citizen of Rome and didn't have rights, you couldn't work in the best jobs. So the people were already poor just because of the political nature of what was happening anyway. And then the tax collectors come, and they get rich while the people suffer even more. And what does... John tell them to do. Don't take anything more than is authorized. Soldiers come also and they ask, what should we do? And he says, don't extort any money from anybody using your force. Now what's interesting is, there's something in our hearts where we start to feel like we are due something. We deserve it. John the Baptist is a priest. His dad's an important priest. And he deserves his cut of the sacrifices. But instead, he went out into the wilderness. Tax collectors see all this money coming in all the time. And they take a cut because after a while, sometimes when you see that much money coming in, you feel like, well, I should get some of this too. The soldiers that are standing there helping this happen, they can extort anything they want because soldiers generally either had good standing with Rome or were Roman citizens or were on their way to becoming citizens. And so they had better rights than the regular Jewish people. And because of that, they felt like they deserved better. Even somebody who has two tunics. Isn't it funny how in our own hearts, after a while, you start to look around and think, man, I deserve, I deserve better. I deserve this. You know, I was, at, uh, I was at school with my kids not too long ago. 
and I was driving around, and th actually this was a long time ago now that I think about it, because I have no concept of time, I apologize. And um, there was a guy in front of me, and this guy is a uh, well-known guy, and uh, he was in a super fancy nice car. Super fancy nice car. And it was super cool, and I like it, and I like nice cars. And as he's driving, my car that I was in did not want to start. So we stopped. Everybody stops as the kids come out because you got to watch out the safety of the kids. My car didn't want to start. My car was an old truck that I had replaced a starter on. And I was like, please, Lord, let it work. And so as we're driving away, I was talking to the Lord, and I was like, Lord, what's up with this old truck? Come on. You can do better than that. And you know what the Lord said? Don't you ever say that to me again. Because the Lord gives to us good gifts. Good gifts. But suddenly, isn't it funny how our hearts want more? Have you ever had a kid at Christmas or a kid at their birthday who's get, who got 30 presents and they finish unwrapping the presents and they put the last one down and you think they're going to go, thank you, everybody. And instead they stand up and go, next. Where's the next one? And you go, that's it, buddy. And they're like, oh. And they have 30, but they don't do anything because there's something in our hearts that do that. And it's weird about how sometimes we think that we are deserving things and do more. Now, here's the thing. God blesses us, and he blesses us because we're his children. He blesses us with good things. He blesses us with beautiful buildings and great stuff and good cars. And sometimes he is so kind to us, he gives us better cars. Praise God, that's awesome. There's nothing against cars or against money or against Nintendo systems or against whatever. Because all the kids want the best Nintendo system, right? That's still the big gift for Christmas. But remember when you were a kid and somebody got a better phone than you did or a better Nintendo than you did or whatever? My point is not the thing. The thing is not the point. My point is this thing that's common into our hearts, common into people's hearts. And what is John changing in their hearts and challenging in their hearts? It's not just what they have. It doesn't matter the stuff. What matters is the heart attitude. You can have 27 planes and, and economy this, of a small country that you control and be honoring God with a heart attitude that's good. Or you can have very little and honor God with a heart attitude that's good. It doesn't matter the things. It matters the, the heart and the attitude. And what's going to happen is when the king comes on the scene, when the Messiah comes on the scene, when Christ comes on the scene, he's going to challenge everybody's heart. And it doesn't matter if you're the emperor himself, and it doesn't matter if you're a leper who is outside society and cast out and a nobody. Everybody has to answer to this one king. And so John the Baptist comes and he lays mountains low and he brings up valleys to make straight the paths of God because God is not so concerned with the outside as he is with the inside. And he's concerned with people's hearts. And John the Baptist begins this message of repentance for everyone, that they would turn away from what they're doing, that instead of thinking that they deserve more from God, they would be content with what they have and their hearts are prepared for when the king comes and challenges everything about them because Jesus will come on the scene and challenge everything about everybody. Here's the amazing thing that's going to happen. Let's read on together. Starting in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also who had been baptized was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And Luke ends this section talking about Jesus. But what's John the Baptist's fate? He goes to prison. His ministry ends not with the great revival we would expect to happen, but instead with John in prison. Did you know that Jesus later says that John the Baptist is the greatest prophet who has ever lived? And his ministry ends up in prison, challenged, broken down. Not what we would think success is. Jesus is going to come on the scene and he's going to change everything. Did you know that when Jesus starts coming on the scene, because John goes to prison, there's only a few disciples left of John who come to Jesus to try to find out who he is. Most everybody else has left and returned to their old ways. They have gone away and they have returned to the old ways. Hey, I love those Bible apps, by the way. If you don't have a Bible app like that that can read to you, you should totally get one because they are the best. No, they are. They're the best. Listen, riding in the car, doing anything like that, you can listen to the word. There's something about hearing the word that's different than reading the word. So praise, I'm blessed you have that on your phone. Amen. It's great. But John the Baptist ends his ministry basically in what we would think of in an earthly way as failure. And all those disciples sort of scatter. Because there's somebody else coming who's greater than John. You see, just getting washed in water and just saying, I want to repent is different than what Jesus is going to bring. When Jesus comes on the scene, he looks directly into people's hearts. And it doesn't matter whether you're a child, whether you're old. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're a Roman or not a Roman. It doesn't matter in the end if you're a Gentile or you're a Jew. It doesn't matter. What matters is your heart before God. And what we see with Jesus is as he looks in with his righteousness into people's hearts, they know they cannot measure up. They cannot measure up to his perfection, to his righteousness, his peace and joy. And even though they've said before, Lord, forgive me and turned away, this stuff that's in their heart keeps creeping up. And all of a sudden, this idea of wanting more and these things start to come and they realize they can't get away from the sin that's in their life. Because the Bible has told us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all of us have corruption in our hearts. That wants more, that blames God, that wants what we want, that's selfish at its root. And where water cannot change us, water can wash away. Did you know that fire can chemically change the composition of things? And John says, one is coming after me who is greater than me, and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. Because when Jesus comes, he is going to take the wrath of all of our sin upon himself. He's going to die on a cross for, on our behalf as a traitor. He is going to take all the wrath of God for sin, your sin and mine. Make us right before God because blood has been shed as the high priest, and he will die on our behalf. 
And then he will rise again, defeating sin and death. And when he does, the Bible tells us that if you believe in him, you become a new creation in Christ. Because he doesn't just baptize us in water, he baptizes us in fire in the Holy Spirit. And it changes your chemical composition. And now your whole body changes. You change inside because your heart has been changed by God to be his, to follow him, and to know him. And suddenly the things that come out of you are not the old selfish desires, but the new things that God has put in you by his own spirit as the fruit of the spirit comes out of you. It's a better way and it's good, isn't it? How is it possible that we can have a good attitude and do what John has said? The only way it's possible is by believing in Jesus Christ, submitting to him, repenting to him, turning into him and saying, Lord, I trust you, and then walking with him. That's the only way. But what does this passage teach us that we should do? What should we do as a result of seeing all these things? I want to tell you a couple things that we can see that happens to John, that if we're going to be faithful in what we do, we need to take into account. The first is this. You can say a lot of things, but what you do matters more. You can say a lot of things, but what you do matters more. Here's John the Baptist. If he was saying, repent, turn from your ways, while he's taking bribes in the temple, it would not have made his ministry effective. Obviously, right? You can say a lot of things, but the way you actually act matters. Here's an example. Um, let's say you know somebody at work who is a real bonehead. They're a bonehead. We all work with boneheads, don't we? Some people are boneheads, just how they are. When you're at work, what does everybody say about them? They don't say, ha, that guy's a bonehead. They say bad things. And if you come in with an encouraging righteous word and you live a life that demonstrates the rule of God on you, what you do is so much more important than what you say. What you do is so much more important than what you say. If you live out love for other people, if you live out love for Jesus, if the fruit of the Spirit exudes from you, not because you are good enough, but because Jesus Christ has saved you and made you his, your life will take on a different form. You don't, here's the great news, ready? You don't have to eat locusts. Isn't that good news? You don't have to eat locusts. You can, you can eat regular food, praise God, and that's good. But the way that you do things matters. And the way that we love people matters and how we how we treat them and what we do, it, it, it shows up, doesn't it? Isn't that really what John is talking about here to all these people? Don't use your influence, your authority. Don't use your, uh, your wealth to extort people. Don't use your place or your position. Instead, serve them, love them, help them. That's really what he's telling people as a fruit of repentance. How much more we, the church, who know Jesus, who are changed, baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire, will we love people and help them by telling the truth and living the truth. The second thing that we see is this. It is costly to tell the truth. It is costly to tell the truth. John, the prophet of God, told the truth, and his earthly ministry was unsuccessful in the world's eyes. But in Jesus' eyes, the one to whom all things are due and to whom all glory is due, the one who is over all things, God himself said that John was the greatest prophet who ever lived. Wouldn't you want to go before him and not just hear 
well done, good and faithful servant. But say, this is my servant. This was the greatest, fill in the blank. This was the greatest garbage collector. This was the greatest doctor. This was the greatest teacher. This was the greatest preschool worker. This was the greatest banker. This was the great, whatever it is, in the kingdom. Now, we don't do it for accolades, but we do it for Jesus, don't we? Because we love him. And earthly success is not the same as kingdom success. And to tell the truth, especially in this day, is dangerous. Because if you tell the truth, you might suffer for it. And I'm telling you, isn't he worth it? Isn't he worth it? Now, I'm not telling you go on Facebook and start spreading a bunch of stuff that's not going to help anybody. But I am talking you, I'm telling you, if you defend the bonehead in the office, you might get clumped in with the bonehead. You know what I'm talking about? And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, you guys, you're, you're dumb. You guys are so worthless. You don't even get to office politics. No, I don't, because I work for a different kingdom. And we have to trust God that he'll lead us through as we tell the truth, as we live the truth, that he will help us. And it's hard, isn't it? It's hard sometimes. And thanks be to God, he's given us a body who can encourage each other, stand with each other, sharpen each other, and bless each other as we grow and honor Jesus. The last thing that we see here is that the end of this passage shows us that there is only one result of any ministry, really, but specifically John's ministry. He is making straight the paths for the Lord so that the Messiah will reign. And how does Luke end this, this section? It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Our lives become all about Jesus, don't they? Everything that we do is about his glory. Everything that we do is about upholding his way. We want people to know him. We want to intercede for people. We want to pray for them. Not just so they get better and good things happen to them, because we want them to come to him and know Jesus. And if they know him, they're going to find grace and they're going to find peace. They're going to find joy and righteousness in him because that's who he is. It's all about Jesus. And so if we get in our minds that we are due anything, the one thing we are due is we are due a great heritage of bringing people to Jesus and giving him glory. And the great news is God meets all of our needs. He's our king. He's our Lord. He's our savior. He lavishes good gifts on us because he loves us. He doesn't make us just go eat locusts. Instead, he puts us in positions where we can represent him. We can honor him. We can glorify him. We can live for him because it's all about Jesus. Amen? Amen. So what should you do today? Uh, take a look at your own heart. And if you see Jesus there, then give him glory. If maybe you've never heard this before, and you look at your own heart and you see that you are trying in your own strength to do the right thing or to turn and walk, if you're trying by just water that's washing over you, but you haven't changed in your composition, then come to him and say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Lord, I will serve you and you alone, and I trust you that my salvation is in you. If you do that, you will know his peace because he's good. Let's pray together. Can you all stand? Father, thank you that you're good. Thank you, Lord, for all the good things that you've given us, God. Thank you, Lord, that you are our provider and our savior and our life. Lord, thank you that you have not taken 460 years of silence to speak to us. But instead, you've spoken to us through your son. Lord, you've spoken to us through your word. Lord, you've spoken to us by your spirit. Help us, Father, that we would represent you and live for you. Lord, let us have lives 
Lord, lives that reflect your kingdom in everything we do. Help us, Lord, to speak the truth, even if it's costly. And Lord, help us in all things to glorify Jesus, because he is worthy. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We lay ourselves at your feet. And we ask you, God, that you would use us, that you'd protect our hearts, that you will help us to be bold, but also, Lord, in our need. Lord, help us, God, by your spirit and your power to do all that you called us to do, because we recognize that we can't do anything without you. But we thank you and we praise you because you are good. In Jesus' mighty name. Be blessed this week. Know the great call of the Father. Know the great rule of the Son. And know the power of the Holy Spirit as he leads you and uses you this week. God bless you. Have a great week.